Here we are in the middle of our series, What Good is the Church? Or Why Does the Church Matter? Or What's the Church About? We're trying to answer all these questions as we go uh, through this series. If you're just joining us today, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Let me just get you caught up. Week one, we talked about the church was important because it's the only human institution that's going to last forever. We see that picture in Revelation. And we looked at the history of the church a little bit and saw how it has outlasted, the church has outlasted the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and, and many other empires and governments. And, and so the church is going to be the institution that lasts forever. And so if we are going to give our lives to work that matters and something that will last, we do, do well to give our lives to the church. Uh, the next week, last week, we talked about how the church is the body of Christ. It's all about Jesus. And so Jesus is the head of the church. And that means he is the source of the church. Everything comes out of Jesus. And he is the ruler and the authority of the church. And he is the final say in everything that we are supposed to say and do. And as the body of Christ, it is our job, our role, my job, your job, that we are part of God's plan to save the world. That's, that's what we're here for. And today we're going to turn over and look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and if you've got your Bible, love for you to follow along with us there. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we see here uh, two different images for what the church is. As Peter is going to describe that the church exists to bring praise to God, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing here right now, and it's what we're going to be doing through eternity. And so if you've got a Bible, love for you to follow along. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And that's going to be our text for this morning. Peter writes this. He says, Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to Him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. To you then, who believe, that's us, the church, He is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, that's us, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Right here we see that Peter is telling us what our job as the church is, and he does it with two pictures, two images. Image one, picture one is this, is that we as the church are the temple of God. We are the temple of God housing the glory of God. That, that's what we do. We are the temple of God. He, he gives us this picture that we're each like a stone, a living stone that is fit together, put together, built together in such a way that it houses the glory of God. We, we make up the temple together. Now, I know that for us today, 
uh, this idea of a temple is sort of a bit lost on us because a temple is not like a church. A temple is is more than a church in in its existence and what it is as far as a building. I mean, we talk about a church building or a temple. A temple in, in Peter's time signified a whole lot more than just a church building does for us today. And so I want to give you about four things that a temple did, some four things that was significant of a temple. And those of you that are note writers, you're going to want to write these down because we're going to come back to this here at the end. But the the temple did a few things. One is this, is it, it signified the presence of God. You looked at the temple and you say, yeah, that's the place where God is. God lives there, or God's presence lives there, or His name lives there, His glory dwells there. That's what the temple is. Psalm 76 celebrates God's presence in the temple. If you go back in the Old Testament, the time before Jesus, you come to 1 Kings chapter 8, and we read about opening day for the temple, the inauguration, the blessing of the temple. And it says that on that day, uh, Solomon prays this prayer of dedication for the temple, and when he does, the entire temple is so filled with the glory of God that the priests are unable to enter the temple. They're, they're just overwhelmed by the presence of God. And so that's what the temple uh, represented, was the presence of God. There's another thing the temple represented, and that was the peace of God. God's temple had not existed for as long as the, the, the Israelite nation had existed. The, the temple of God was only built after the nation of Israel had peace. I mean, before that, God had the tabernacle. I think of it as sort of God's RV, and He is just cruising through the desert, making His way to the promised land with His people. But once they get to Jerusalem, and once David establishes that as, as the capital city, once that happens... David says, I want to build a temple for the Lord. And God says to David, he says, that's not for you to do, David, because you are a man of violence. You're a man of war, and your hands have got blood on them. It is your son Solomon who's going to build the temple. Now, this might have escaped us, but Solomon's name in the Hebrew means peace. Solomon's name means peace. God wanted his house to be a house of peace. And so the temple of Israel was built at the pinnacle of peace, of prosperity. And so for the Jewish people, when they thought about the temple, it signified to them that all was well in the world. And so that's the second thing the temple signified. Third thing the temple signified was that it was a place of divine communication. Jesus in the New Testament says that my house will be called a house of prayer. That's, that's God's words from Isaiah where he's talking about the temple. He says he wants it to be a place of prayer. People in that time went to the temple when they wanted to know what God had for them. They wanted to know what is the will of God. One place you went, you went to the temple. And the priest there could tell you this is what uh, God's will is for your life. And that's, that was a place of divine communication. Fourth thing, last thing here is this, that the temple was a gathering place for community. Uh, Psalm 122, and actually that whole series of the Psalm of of Ascents, starting in Psalm 120 and following, um, it's a celebration of God's people going to the temple to to just be together as a nation and to glorify and celebrate God. That's that's what those are about. And God constructed it in this way. He, He made it so that you had to go to the temple to worship. Um, during Passover, you know, we, we associate lamb with Passover, but God was specific in this. He said there's only one place that you can have a, a Passover lamb, and that is if and only if it is sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem. 
If you can't sacrifice it there, you can't have lamb. And so what a lot of people don't know today is that Orthodox Jewish folks, when they celebrate Passover today, they cannot eat lamb on Passover because it cannot be sacrificed there in the temple of Jerusalem. Because God said, I want you to go to this place. I want you to gather in my name. I want you to come together as a people. That is, is how I'm going to be glorified is when you come together. And so all of these are images. All of these are, are truths and realities that, that Peter's audience knew about the temple. And Peter is turning that back to the church and he's saying, this is what you, Christ follower, this is what you are making up together. You together as a church, you represent God. You are God's temple. And as such, he says, I want you to keep the temple holy. He starts there in verses 1 through 3. What does he say? He says, I want you to get rid of all this sin. In other words, I want you to clean up God's house. Now, what do you do when you clean up your house for company to come? You clean up your house a little more for company to come than maybe when you do for just kind of every day, right? You get the, the vacuum out. You spend a little bit of extra time. You want to make sure the vacuum marks look good on the floor. You spend some time sweeping and dusting. You, you spend some time, you know, cleaning windows. You, you spend some time wiping off those dots, those white dots that are on the mirror there in your bathroom. You want to get all that tidied up. Now, why do we do all this when company comes? Some of you men, you might be going, exactly. Why, why do we do this when company comes? It's good enough for us, Monday, Monday through Thursday, but boy, Friday night, somebody's coming over, we got a, it's a whole new standard. What's the deal? I think the simple answer is this, is we want people to feel at home in our house, right? We, we, we have you to dinner. We don't want you to be eating on a dirty plate going, what am I going to get from this meal? I mean, maybe hepatitis A, B, and two Cs. I mean, maybe I'll get both of that, you know, all, all of those things. Maybe we'll get that. You want people to feel at home, comfortable. You know, the knives are clean and the silverware is clean. You want to be like, you know, just kind of wipe it off in your jeans. Be like, you know, that's, that's better. It's good. You want people to feel comfortable. You want them to, to be at home in your house, not to feel like, you know, they're going to some sort of gas station bathroom. You want them to feel at home there. That's what you're looking to do. And so we spend some time, we get things tidied up. Now let's ask a different question. What if, I mean, this is, couldn't really happen, but let's say, just for the sake of imagination, you were going to have company over to your mind and to your heart. And they were going to come in and they were going to be able to see your thoughts and they were going to be able to know what your real and true feelings were. How much time would you spend cleaning that up? It'd take a little bit longer than probably a Saturday afternoon, I suspect. Because we'd want to make sure that was in order. And see, in a very real way, this is what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, your heart, your mind, that is what God's residence is. And he says, so if you want God to feel at home in your heart and you want God to feel at home in your mind, you've got to get rid of all of these things. What does he say? He says, get rid of the evil. Get rid of the sin. He says, stop being two-faced. You know, focus on your blessings instead of envying the blessings of others. Stop talking about other people. He's reminding us that God lives within us, and we make up His home. And so we should treat our bodies like a temple. And yet too often we treat our bodies like a tent, and our minds like a tent. You know, we think about what's the difference between a tent and a temple. Well, there's a lot of differences, I suppose, but one is a temple is going to hopefully last forever, and a tent is temporary. Nobody builds a tent and says, this is going to stand the test of the ages. You know, this is going to be here long after we leave. You know, it's, nobody thinks that. 
But a temple, you build a temple and you think, this is going to outlast us. This is going to have permanence. This is going to be a place where generations can come and see God. Which is why Peter's going to tell us that we should build our lives on Jesus Christ Himself. Now, some of the most boring Scripture you can read is there in the Old Testament in Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, if you, you know, it's true that all of God's Word is inspired. It is all inspired by God, but not all of God's Word is equally inspiring. You know, you read through Exodus in Leviticus, and you'll read about how the tabernacle is supposed to be made and, and how it is supposed to be so many cubits long. And try to go to Lowe's and find a tape measure with a cubit, you know, cubit marker on it. It doesn't exist. You know, it's supposed to be so many cubits long, and it's supposed to be so many breadths high, and it's supposed to be this, and it's supposed to be made out of that material, and it's supposed to be made out of this kind of leather, and you look up the footnotes, and they're like, the Hebrew word for this is uncertain, and, and you read all this stuff, and it just, it gives you the whole list of how this court's supposed to be made, and that, and the base, uh, bases, and the pillars, and all this stuff is supposed to be constructed, and it goes on for chapters, and then when you get done with that, it says, and then Moses took these plans and gave them to this guy, and this guy built it according to the, the plans. But it doesn't just say he built it according to the plans. It actually copies the plans that were in the chapters before. And so you got 10 chapters of the plans, and then another 10 chapters explaining how he built it exactly according to the plans that he had before. And this is where most people die in their, their annual Bible reading plan. They're like, I'm going to read all through Scripture. And then they die in the plans of the tabernacle. And they're like, this is, wow, who can make it through this? I mean, it, it's, it, it is hard. It's painful. It's a bit painful. And a lot of us Protestants, you know, kind of on this side of the cross, we're like, why does it matter what the plans were for the tabernacle? Who cares? And the answer to that is God cares. God says, this is going to be my RV that I'm going to be living in for the next 40 years and longer. I want you to build it right. He's going to do the same thing when the temple gets built. He's going to give them specific instructions. He says, listen, this is how I want this built. This is what my name sits in. I don't want you to just slap something together, you know, cobble something together with what you got left over in the backyard or left in the shed. I want you to build this right because my name is attached to this. I'm going to live in this. I want you to build it right. And friends, if God cared that much about a structure that no longer exists, don't you think that he cares even more about what his temple that we are right now, don't you care, think that he cares even more what we are building his temple with today? And the answer is absolutely, absolutely God cares, which is why he gives us instructions to build our house on, on Jesus and, and to build with things that will last and to stop treating our minds and our hearts and our souls haphazardly, consuming things that defile us in our lives because we are the temple of God. And that's the first part here, is that we as Christians, we make up the temple of God. There's a second piece to this, though. Peter's going to give us a different image. He's going to say that we are also the priesthood of God, that we exist to declare His praise. Now, this is an active role. It says that we are, are stones being fit together, that God is taking us and putting us into the right place and into the right task and the right role. But he says that while that's happening, we are also priests who are offering sacrifices to God, sacrifices of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says this. It says, through him, that's Jesus, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
Now, we talk about praise, but I want to ask this question. What is praise? What does it mean for us to praise God? Because we don't use that word a whole lot in other places. What does it mean for us to praise? Well, praise is a couple things. One is it, is it means to make something famous. It means to, to declare something and to point something out and say, this is good. And Scripture says we're supposed to do that with God. We're supposed to point God out, this invisible God that we're making visible as we are the temple of God, sort of being formed together. We're making the invisible God visible. We're also pointing Him out. We're saying this is God and all of His goodness. Look at Him. Enjoy Him. Celebrate Him. And when we do that, I know a lot of times we think, well, that seems kind of self-serving that we're all just praising God. But when we praise things, it completes our enjoyment of it as well. I don't know if you've ever gone to see a movie that you really, really enjoyed. Hopefully you have, because um, it costs quite a bit to go to the movie. So hopefully you enjoy the movies you go see. When you get done seeing a good movie, what, what do you often do? The first thing you do is do what? You tell somebody about it, right? You say, man, I saw the best movie this weekend. This was a great movie. And you're telling everybody you know about that movie. Why? Because there's just something in you. You've got to get it out. You've got to share it. It's fun to share it. It's fun to talk about it. It's fun to relay those experiences. I know a lot of you uh, took, took trips this uh, spring break, and it was fun to see. Uh, we had a couple of families go to St. Louis. A couple of you were holed up in a bathtub in Destin, Florida. Uh, felt bad for you down there, waiting out the tornadoes down there. But, uh, I mean, you know, it was, it was fun seeing your pictures and, and tra- sort of traveling with you. And, and, you know, why do you put pictures out there? It's because it completes the experience. It, it sort of helps the enjoyment to be even more. You're sharing those good times with other people. Uh, ben and Carabito, they went to St. Louis this, uh, this last week, and, and before they left, I said, you know, there's one thing you have to do in St. Louis. Uh, you've got to go to Emo's Pizza. A friend of mine lived in St. Louis when I was in college, and we would go back home with him. It wasn't too far from where we went to school. And we would go there, and we would always eat at Emo's Pizza because it it's just it's delicious. It's great. Um, and so Ben, later that night, sent me a text with a picture of Emo's Pizza Cup, and I could see the pizza. It's, it's, it's flat, and they cut it into squares, and so I knew that's exactly where he was. And when he did that, it made me happy. You know, I, I wasn't like, man, he's just rubbing it in that he's at Emo's Pizza and I'm not there. I mean, I was excited for him. I was, I was glad that he was there. I was happy for him and his family. I know that it was good for them. But it made me think about all the times I had been there. And it made me think about, you know, the, the good times that we had shared at that place. That's what praise does. Praise, it, it, it completes the experience. It, it helps us to, to share that with others, and it brings us joy. Now, there's a lot of things we can celebrate about God, but Peter's going to point out two in verse 10. I'm going to put that on the screen for you. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So that's thing one. Thing two is that once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The very first thing Peter praises God for is that now we belong together, that we are a part of a people. We used to be isolated. We used to be disconnected. We used to be left to our own devices and left alone. But now in Christ, we have been brought together. We have been united. This is why one of the best things that you can do when you introduce people to Jesus is you can introduce them to the church. You invite them to church and you say, come and experience what this fellowship is like. Come and experience what it's like to be a part of the body of Christ. Come experience this. You know, this, this last week we, we uh, sent you out with some peeps and there's still some out there. Love for you to take them this week, invite people to come to Easter. And it was uh, a lot of fun this week. We, uh, we knew we had some baseball games this week and so we grabbed, I don't know, 20, 25 peeps and we put them into a Kroger bag and we took them with us to give out to uh, kids' teams for baseball. 
And so we had a bunch left over one night because it was spring break and half the teams were both gone. And so we had a bunch of peeps left in the van and, and it was late. It was about 8.30 and we're like, man, we've got to eat dinner before we drive back home and try to get these kids in bed. And so we stopped at Bojangles. It was just close and we've been wanting to try it. And I like fried chicken and biscuits. You can't go wrong. And so we pulled in and, and the, the, the meal was good. And there was a gal there that was working behind the counter and she said she was new. And and so we just got to talking a little bit. I get in the van, and I realize we've still got like a dozen peeps left over. And so I thought, well, I'm going to take, take some of these in. And so I grabbed about six. It was about what I could get in my hands. And I, I took them in, and I put them on the counter. They're like, what's this for? I said, well, it's just for you guys. And they're like, really? I mean, and you would have thought I'd just taken a bag of money and just dumped it all over the counter. Like, this is the greatest thing ever. We love peeps. And so all of a sudden, I look in the back, and there's like everybody's coming out from the fryer and the deep freezer, and like the whole like store is coming out. I realize there's like there's a dozen people in there, and so I go back to the car and I get the rest of them. I bring them in and I I hand them out, and, and as I'm walking out the door, like they're like I, I don't have a church. I'm new to town. This is really great. I'm so glad you brought these in, friends. You just you never know. That's why we give these things out. I know some of you are like, oh, that's that's gimmicky. Well, I mean, yeah, but it gives us a chance to have a conversation to invite people to be a part of the fellowship. And that's what Peter says. He says, man, we didn't belong, now we do. That's the same one. The second thing Peter praises God for is this, is for his mercy. He says, God is merciful. Once we hadn't received mercy, we were separated from God, we were cut off, we were condemned, but now in Jesus Christ, we have been given mercy. And so when we live as people who show mercy, when we turn the other cheek, when we overlook an insult, when we return love for hate, when we forgive an offense, when we pretend not to hear something and just let it go, we show God's mercy and we live our lives as agents of God's mercy. Friends, in all this, here's what we're trying to do is we're trying to do everything to glorify God. We want to do everything that brings praise to God. Now, what do I mean by everything? Well, I mean everything. If you want to read a great book on this, read Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. Uh, but I, I, I would say we can take a clue on what it means to do everything to praise God if we look again at those roles, those purposes of the temple. If you wrote them down, I'm, I'm just going to hit them again real quick. But the first one is this, is that we're supposed to represent God's presence. As Christians, wherever we go, we represent God's presence. Peter's going to write this a few chapters later. He's going to say, above all, chapter 4, verse 8, he says, above all, maintain constant love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. Amen. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What Peter is saying this is real simple. It's real clear. He says, listen, if you teach, teach as though you were, you were speaking the very words of God. If you are serving, serve as though you were serving with the power of God. So that way, whatever you do, whether it is at church or at work or at home, whatever you do, people look at your lives and they go, man, I can see God in them. I can see the presence of God in that person. The second thing I think we need to do is we need to represent the peace of God. We need to be people of peace. Well, how do we do that practically? Well, I mean, we just need to be at peace because we can rest in the work of Jesus Christ. And so wherever we go, we don't have to be stressed. We don't have to be hurried. We don't have to be troubled because we know whose we are. We're in Jesus Christ, and we know that we are secure in Him. 
Tim Keller writes this in his book. He says this. He says, Jesus is the only boss who will not drive you into the ground, the only audience that does not need your best performance in order to be satisfied with you. Why is this? Because his work for you is finished. Keller is celebrating the mercy of God that Peter does, but he goes on to describe this. He says, a Christian is someone who not only admires Jesus, emulates Jesus, and obeys Jesus, but who rests in the finished work of Christ instead of his or her own. This means that when you're at work, you don't have to prove yourself because Jesus has already done that. You can simply dedicate yourself to serving God, to doing your best there, to being somebody who is at peace. And when people come into your presence, they know that there's just something calm and there's just something about you that, that it just feels like they're coming into the presence of God because you are doing whatever you do for the Lord and not for men. Second thing, or the third thing you can do is you can be a representative of divine communication. Well, how, how do you do that practically? Well, it's real simple. If somebody in your workspace or your office or at your home or, you know, somebody you're friends with is going through a hard time, simply tell them this. Say, listen, I'm going to pray for you. Just let them know that. Let them know that you are going to intercede on their behalf to the Lord. And then pray for them. And then give it a week or two and then come back and say, hey, listen, I have been praying for you. Let them know that you have been talking to God on their behalf, that you are interceding for them. And friends, if you do these things, if you represent God's presence and you're a person of peace and you act as a representative of divine communication, people will gather around you and you will be a community builder. You will be a church builder if you do these things for the glory of God. Now, I know a lot of folks would say, well, you know, it's easy to talk about this and it's easy to work and worship God when I'm at church, but you don't you don't know my boss. Or it's easy to worship and work for God while I'm here, but you don't know what it's like when I get home. I get that. I really do. Here's the thing, is that we are called to be the temple of God. And we're the temple of God wherever we go because we always have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we're called to be the priesthood of God. And wherever we go, we cannot stop being a priest because we always represent Jesus. This is why Paul writes to people in a really difficult situation in Colossians chapter 3. They had really bad bosses. They called them masters because they were slaves. And this is what he says to them. He says, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters. Since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here is writing to these, these people who are enslaved, and he's saying, listen, do your best, at, even in these dark times, to represent Jesus. And when you're doing work, don't do it for your master. You don't have to like him or her. You're doing it for Jesus. Because in everything you do, you're going to show Jesus. Now, we could talk about this, and a lot of people, you know, you struggle with texts like this because, you know, you're like, well, is Paul for slavery? No, absolutely not. He writes the book of Philemon to set a slave free because Paul is not for that. But what he is for is people showing Jesus in whatever situation they find themselves. And that includes me, and that includes you. And it's important that we all do this. I know that it's easy for us to sit in a room this size and realize, well, there's been another service in here, and so there's like maybe 300 people that are going to come through here, and we're all priests, and I'm just one little tiny brick, you know, and there's a whole bunch of other bricks in Bowling Green too, and, and so, I mean, if I just don't happen to show up to be in the temple tomorrow, nobody's going to miss me. 
But, but that's the problem, isn't it? How many of you have talked to somebody about Jesus Christ, or you've talked to them about the church, and the thing they bring up isn't that Jesus wasn't good enough for them, or it wasn't that the church they didn't like, but it was one Christian they met that just it ruined it for them. They claimed to be faithful, but they couldn't be faithful to their family. They claimed to be somebody that was following the principles of Jesus, but they weren't somebody that had integrity. Just one person, one brick, one priest that they ran into that just kind of ruined it for them. And friends, as I think about our church and the church in America, I think that often we're in danger of just sort of falling apart one brick at a time. In 2008, the Orthodox Church in Russia experienced a bit of a revival, and in a community about 200 miles northeast of Russia, or of Moscow, there in Russia, there was a community that had a group of believers that had come. And so the, uh, the church sent some representatives out to that place because they knew that there had been a church in that, that area. Uh, the church was 200 years old. It was built in the last part of the 1800s. And they were thinking, like, let's reopen this church because now there's a whole community of believers here that could use the church. And so the, the, the denomination gets together, they send the, the officials out, they get the GPS, they put it in there, and they drive out to the place where this church is. But when they get to the address, there's no church building there. Now, this was a brick church building, two stories tall, that had stood on that site for 200 years. And when they got there, the only thing that was left was about a half of a wall. That was it. Everything else, everything else was gone. And so they asked the neighbors, they said, what happened to this building? Did something explode? Did what, I mean, what happened? And they said, well, you know, the economy has been difficult. And there's a guy down the street that will pay seven cents a brick. And so what happens is people from the community come to this church site and they literally take it apart brick by brick because they've got to get all the mortar off and it's got to be in one piece. And so they literally take, like a surgeon removes the bricks, brick from brick from mortar from brick, they take it apart and one by one they've sold them for seven cents a piece to this guy. This church was literally dismantled brick by brick. And as I think about this text and our call to be the temple of the living God, I realize that it is so important for us, so important for me, and it's so important for you as individual bricks to be committed to this idea that God deserves our praise and that we exist for His praise. And so this week, let's be people that do that. Let's be people that, that, that are people of peace, that bring people together in the name of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we act as that priesthood, declaring the praise of God. Let's pray.